Hey, everybody. Welcome to session 53 of the Behavioral Observations podcast. I am joined today by Gia Biscontini from WorkWell, and uh, where they make corporate health heroes. It's a business that provides services to organizations to help them develop healthy workplace practices. And in today's episode, we demystify all things mindfulness and meditation. And when I say we, I really mean Gia, because it's something I really don't know much about. In fact, I tell some somewhat embarrassing stories about my feeble attempts to meditate. But in this episode, we uh, distinguish the differences between meditation and mindfulness. That's something I tend to mess up quite a bit. Um, Gia tells a story about how she got into these practices and things like that, as well as uh, provides a list of resources. Uh, those resources can be found at behavioralobservations.com. The show notes are there for session 53. And uh, she actually shared with us a little, she created like a mini white paper uh, talking about the behavior analytic perspective on meditation. And you can download that at uh, behavioralobservations.com session 53. Uh, and uh, it's just a straight download, no emails needed or anything like that. Um, Gia also has a course that's available, so if you're uh, interested in getting into uh, uh, med meditation and mindfulness, she has a course called Behavioral Xanax 2.0, and she has graciously offered a discount for podcast listeners, uh, so that is a 30% discount using the offer code OPERANT. Uh, again, all this information is at behavioralobservations.com. Uh, under this episode, and uh, I don't want to really delay the interview any further, so uh, without any further ado, uh, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Gia Biscontini. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now, here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Gia Biscontini, welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you doing today? I am well, and thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so excited. I am excited, too. This has been a conversation we've been planning, much like, you know, I think this is a pattern for a lot of my guests. You know, we end up, like, taking these <laughs> months, sometimes years, to, like, kind of get these conversations going together. And it just, I guess, is a thing that everyone is busy in this field and whatnot, and it takes time to kind of arrange schedules. But we've been talking about this since, I think, December, when we uh, when we met out in Las Vegas. In Vegas. So. I'm yeah, in Vegas. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, so I'm glad we're finally able to pull it off. And uh, so we're here to not just talk about mindfulness, but talk about workplace, workplace well-being and a couple of other things that you're really into and passionate about. And so we're going to get to all that in just a minute. But first, uh, I want to talk about how you got into ABA. What was your kind of point of discovery and, uh, you know, kind of trace that through to kind of how you got into this, uh, you know, uh, mindfulness and meditation and things like that. Sure. Um, well, I took the circuitous route to ABA. Um, I, you know, despite always being really, really interested in behavior, even as a kid, um, I would like sit at my window and like watch my neighbors and just watch people interact. Um, but all I knew was psychology. So my parents said, Oh, if you want to work with people, go, you know, get a degree in psychology. So I did that. Um, and I'll date myself here, but I was in college from 2000 to 2004. And despite having a major in psych, um, mostly with studying atypical populations, I had never heard um, about autism um, that I can remember. Uh, no projects, no papers, anything like that. Um, I knew it existed, but it, it was very separate um, from my psych background. And uh, when I graduated, um, I grew up wanting to be a pediatrician. So I thought, okay, I can meld psych and kids together and maybe do something with that. And um, I 
took a brief segue from adulthood after graduation and moved to LA for about seven or eight months. Um, you know, studied for the GREs. I knew I'd go to grad school and, uh, then I wanted to get some work experience. So the first job I took was at a, um, really beautiful residential facility for children and adults with developmental, um, disorders, um, outside of Philadelphia. And, um, that's where I learned about ABA and I loved it. Um, fell in love with it. I loved working with the kids. Um, however, I was paired up with, um, the most aggressive female, um, that they had on campus out of 200 and some children. And she was my height, um, at about five one, but she had about 60 pounds on me, uh, I'm a small person. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't the most ethical pairing. Um, she was very aggressive. It's it's hard to follow a behavior plan um, <laughs> when someone's got 60 pounds on you. So yeah, I was... That, that uh, must have been quite an extinction burst. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, I tried to do the right thing. We, I was in a classroom of um, five of us adults and five children, and we were supposed to rotate throughout the children. But I noticed that because of her aggression and because of her size and strength, uh, people were not following through, obviously, right? Self-preservation kind of takes over those, uh, we avoid and escape. Um, so I chose, I asked if I could work with her full time and only her, um, because I wanted to try and, um, do the best that I could and follow through with those behavior plans. And, um, I had a lot of support there, but it was still obviously really difficult. So I was sent to the hospital once a week for every week that I worked there. Oh my, that must've yeah. set, you must've set some sort of record. I'm sure they're lost. For, their, their insurance people must've, uh, must've loved that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it was, it was the expectation that I come right back to work and continue on. Um, so after about two months of that, you can imagine, um, I remember I was standing next to my friend and she put her hand up to like brush her hair at her face and I flinched and she said, you have to get out of there. <laughs> this is, this is really wearing on you. Um, and I didn't want to give up. Um, I guess it's more self-preservation <laughs> than giving up, but, um, I left the field and I was bummed. I really liked what I knew about ABA in such a short amount of time. So um, I had ended up taking IO psych classes at St. Joe's when I lived in Philadelphia um, and then ended up moving to Annapolis. And um, when I was in Annapolis, I um, started uh, getting involved with Autism Speaks and ended up being brought on as a um, board member for the Bowen Foundation for Autism, which is still going. Um, and through the Bowen Foundation for Autism, I was the liaison between us and the um, DC chapter of Autism Speaks. So I was reviewing applications and um, going to grad school at the same time. Um, I got into a clinical psych program out here at Pepperdine um, uh, in California, but I deferred my enrollment to do um, early childhood special education and human development through the George Washington University. Again, couldn't find any programs in the area um, on ABA or really autism in general. So I sat down with the dean and I asked her um, if she would let me tailor my own program. And they were amazing. Um, the George Washington University was really accommodating. They knew I didn't want to be in education. They knew I wanted to work with children with autism in a more scientific and clinical approach. Um, so they let me tailor my program. So I got a lot of experience with children with autism there um, and special education, despite the fact that I never really saw myself in the classroom. And then after uh, graduating, I got my dream job out of um, at a graduate school. I worked for the Central Office of Special Education in Washington, D.C., under uh, then-Chancellor of Schools Michelle Rhee and um, then-Mayor uh, Adrian Fenty. Hey, so well, we had hold on one second. So how, did that, how does that happen? <laughs> like, what was, what were, were you, was there like, a, how, how did you make that connection, I guess? Because uh, that seems like a... a, a, a a pretty tall order to pull off, I suppose. Oh, um, I don't know. I, I always wanted to move back to California. So the plan was after grad school, I would move to California somewhere, but I graduated when the economy crashed. So I had to really network my pants off in DC and get to know people because I needed to work through my connections. So 
um, the George Washington University, GW, uh, helped me out a lot and just a lot of networking. It was trial by fire for sure. Um, applied for the job and, um, and got it. So, uh, I felt really, really lucky. I was working in this new $10 million evaluation center, one way mirrors. We were, we were really well set up and I was, um, got my first chance at leadership. I led a team of, um, a psychologist, a speech, um, uh, an SLP, um, an occupational therapist and a physical therapist. And we had children come in ages three to five, um, that were at risk for developing some sort of, um, uh, learning disability or developmental delay. And, uh, so I, I did assessments there and absolutely loved it. Um, and I noticed that, um, because of the population we were working with, they, they weren't super educated about child development. So we'd have a child that was flagged for speech. Um, but we'd come in and it turns out the child's four and has never said a word and they'd be hand flapping and, you know, doing all the, all the red signs of autism. So I ended up creating, um, their autism department within the government, which is essentially a startup within the government. So that really almost never happens <laughs> mm. that the government does uh, a super cool new program like this within the central office of special ed. Um, but it was amazing. Um, so I did their autism team. I flew to LA, got certified on the ADOS and did all of that. Um, and then after about two years in government, I had had a, enough. I needed a break <laughs> from the government world. Um, big things move really slowly. And I was learning that I moved very quickly. So um, I took a year and a half off and started a photography company, did that for a while, and then decided to go back to ABA. So I went to the George Mason University to do my postgraduate work and studied under Ted Hoke, who's now the president-elect of um, the Virginia Association for Behavior Analysis. And I've been there ever since. Hey everyone, as a BCBA, meeting your continuing ed needs can be challenging at times. That's why I have made selected episodes of the Behavioral Observations podcast available for Type 2 continuing education credits. That's right. You can meet a portion of your professional development requirements on the go. Currently, we have CEs for topics including functional assessment, ethics, and supervision. Come learn from podcast favorites such as Greg Hanley, Pat Fryman, Mark Dixon, as well as many other amazing guests. For more information, head on over to behavioralobservations.com forward slash get CEs. You know, you can't go anywhere, I think, these days without hearing the word mindfulness, and it almost produces an involuntary eye roll, you know, <laughs> I, I think, for some segment of the population. I'm sure there's many people who are into it, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it, that's cool. And then there's, there's, there's folks who are like, oh, my gosh, if I see another article on Yahoo News about mindfulness, you know, mindfulness this, mindfulness, you know, so... Um, take us through the journey of how you kind of encountered that, uh, and then we can get into the, the nuts and bolts of that a little bit later, but I, I want to know how you, you know, kind of f found your way to that and, um, you know, how, how you got into that and, and, you know, kind of how you're using it today. And then we get, of course we can get into the nuts and bolts of how it all works and things like that as we go forward. Sure. Um, so I was speaking to, um, you know, my life in DC, I was a graduate student, I had a full time internship, and I was on the board of directors for um, a company. So I was averaging about four to five hours of sleep a night. And um, I wanted to help manage my stress. So in about 2005, I started reading about yoga and mindfulness and meditation. Um, but because I was in behavioral science, I wasn't supposed to read that stuff. <laughs> uh, and I, it was a struggle. I, I read about these things for two years. Um, plus I was just intimidated to go to a yoga class. You know, I'm an, an Italian East coaster and I did not, <laughs> I did not relate to the really, um, happy floating people that were coming out of the yoga and meditation classes. So, um, I just kind of wished that I, um, would, have the nerve to walk into one of those classes and experience it for myself for a couple of years. And then 2007, I took my first yoga class and was blown away. Um, I had grown up an athlete. I had grown up uh, a ballet dancer. I had grown up, you know, horseback riding. I was into everything, um, but I'd never incurred anything like this. And I walked out of the yoga class and went to buy my first yoga mat, one of many. Um, and 
So 2007 was about the time that I was in grad school. So my yoga and meditation experience started about the time that I started getting into behavioral science and they lived very separately for a really long time. Um, I, uh, you know, I ended up working at a large nonprofit where, um, Tom Zabo, who does a lot of, you know, act stuff was my research director. And I still remember talking to him and saying, why can't these two things live together? Um, and that was just a couple years ago. And, uh, so for years and years and years, I, um, had my yoga self and my BCBA self and never the two twains shall meet. <laughs> and one day they did, um, August of 2017, just this past year, um, a book came out called Altered Traits um, by Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson. And um, it was about the time that I had left the nonprofit world. Um, I was no longer practicing um, in a agency. I started my own practice. I had just gotten back from Europe. I had just started my own um, behavioral pediatric clinic. And I was looking for a way to help parents um, reduce their stress. And I always thought about yoga and meditation. I thought, I'm not a certified yoga teacher. That's a huge liability. You know, I, I kept talking myself out of it. And then the book, um, Altered Traits, came along, and it has a neuroscientific backing to meditation. Um, so I would agree, mindfulness is a nightmare for a behavior analyst. It has the word mind, which, as you <laughs> pointed out, is just the eye roll and the, oh, gosh, um, you're one of those people, and you immediately shut off and um, and stop listening to the other person. But meditation is the behavior to me, and, and mindfulness is really this kind of esoteric, unclear results of meditation. Um, oh, so you know, I'm hang on one second. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that that is... I, I was I was hoping you would distinguish between what is you know the difference between mindfulness and meditation and and, and um, could you just repeat that an, a, another time just so we're we're clear on on that that um, that distinction? Yeah. So to me, meditation is the behavior, and mindfulness is this kind of esoteric, unclear result of that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I had found altered traits and it has good science, you know, like you said, Time Magazine and the New Yorker, and you see mindfulness everywhere and it's just overused, like the word, you know, holistic or other kind of buzzwords that we're all really sick of hearing about, Um, especially, I mean, I'm in San Diego, so it's everywhere. Oh my gosh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It's everywhere. Hey man. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's culture change from DC, I'll tell you that. Um, But So, um, yeah, so mindfulness does, you know, uh, does occasion that response, especially for a behavior analyst. But to me, once Altered Traits came out and I had read the book and there's good science behind meditation, I can go into some of those those studies later. um, I thought, yes, this is it. This is the dream. This is what I've been thinking about for the past 10 years. Um, I have good science that I trust, um, that I can use. So to me, it was almost like a study coming out that a plant-based diet is good for you, right? We can all agree that salads are healthy and eating meat and French fries every day is traditionally bad for you. Like we have that research and now meditation. um, And I will tell you the authors of Altered Traits, as well as John Kabat-Zinn, who does mindfulness-based stress reduction, will tell you point blank, there's not enough research. Um, we're still working on it, right? Science takes a long time, but the research that we have, the good research that we have is showing some really encouraging results. So that's why, um, that's how I, I kind of got into it and married behavior analysis and meditation and yoga. So let's talk about the science now that you brought it up. Um, and, and, you know, one of the Listeners, Freddie uh, wrote a question and uh, he said something to the effect of, how does she respond if someone says what she teaches isn't based on science? Um, so you, you've kind of addressed that already. But my, uh, I guess, follow-up question to that is, is something to the effect of, you know, a lot of the science on this, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm very well could be, you know, is based off of, you know, large groups designs, you know, that things that are kind of foreign to us as behavior analysts. So, um, and I'm glad that some of these authors, as you point out, are, are highlighting the fact that, yes, they're, you know, this is promising, but perhaps more please, if you will. Um, can you talk about what kind of science 
results are out, what kind of evidence is out there for this, uh, especially as it relates to the different types of you know, scientific endeavors that, that you know, we as behavior analysts favor or, or, or prefer to see and you know, kind of believe it provides better evidence. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I, as a behavior analyst, completely get the the questioning, you know, is this really science? And to me, I think it, it took taking a step back from that word mindfulness and meditation and the stigma behind it and saying, okay, break this down behaviorally. What is meditation? I kind of throw mindfulness out the window because that phrase or that name um, doesn't do much for me, but meditation I focus on as a behavior. And to me, you can operationally, and first of all, I harbor no delusions about being a meditation expert. There are hundreds of different types of meditation to cultivate, you know, they have loving kindness to cultivate compassion. And they actually have measured all these things. Um, Stanford does a really nice job with some of that. Um, But the meditation that I've chosen to focus on is to me, what's most behavioral and simple um, which is basically just a focused breath meditation. So an operational definition could be, um, you know, sitting in an active, comfortable position, you know, not really laying back and it's not laying down and taking a nap, right? You're actively sitting in a comfortable position and inhaling and exhaling voluntarily on say, you know, a five second, you can give a, a duration, a five second count of an inhale and exhale while, redirecting any disruptive private verbal behavior back to your breath or back to some sort of a stimuli, whether it's looking at a candle or something like that. So meditation focuses on redirecting your attention to something um, and focusing on breath. So to me, mindfulness, I think, is is an issue for behavior analysts because we say there's no such thing as the mind, which is always, you know, there's no such thing as the mind most would say, most of us anyway, (laughs) but there is such a thing as the brain and our bodies need oxygen and our bodies have stress responses that are unhealthy. If your cortisol levels are, are elevated for too long, you're in that fight, flight or freeze response for too long. So you can take a medical approach to it. So it's not this esoteric spiritual thing. Um, and by the way, if you're in Southeast Asia, they think we are nuts for researching <laughs> everything the way that they do. They're, they've done this for thousands of years and they don't question it. Um, although I do understand why we do. Uh, but, you know, to them, it's this practice that that just is. Um, and we're studying it. And so if you look at altered traits, they study Olymp- what they call Olympic level meditators, Um, you know, Buddhist monks who've been doing this for years, you know, they've got their 10,000 hours, they're considered experts, I guess, although they wouldn't use that term. And then they take novices. And then they take people like me who've been meditating heavily for maybe just two or three years. Um, And they measure brainwaves, they measure biofeedback. So, you know, to say it's not based in science, isn't really true anymore, although I can see where that came from. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you aware of any kind of single subject research or anything like that as it relates to, you know, any type of, and I'll stop using the word mindfulness, meditation practices. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. Um, So Richard Davidson um, is a neuroscientist out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he um, is at the Center for Healthy Minds. Um, The best research that I've seen comes out of there. I would direct everyone there. You can look at all the studies that they're doing. And, um, you know, Altered Traits has an appendix and, you know, all of that. Um, so they do look at groups, but they all, they also look at, like I said, those taking that one Olympic level meditator, Buddhist monk, and looking at what that person is engaging in and what their brains are doing. And then contrasting that with, you know, a brain like, um, like yours or mine. I see. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. I've I've never meditated, um, and I uh, I would think. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I I, I don't think I've tried to cultivate a practice of it. You mm-hmm. know, there's been times I think where I have kind of woken up in the middle of the night and have been either stressed or even not stressed, and but nonetheless having a hard time going back to sleep, and have tried not to you know, think of, you know, try to focus on one thing and not, because, you know, my mind will run and I'll think about like, oh, what am I going to have for breakfast? And, you know, maybe while I am, you know, on my way home from work, you know, I just, you know, make all Mm -hmm. these kind of, you know, just random stuff and it'll, 
I'll do that instead of falling back to sleep, you know, for some period of time. And um, anyway, um, and so there have been times, as I've kind of heard more and more about this, you know, on those, I guess, occasions in which this happens to me, uh, I'll, I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to count my breaths, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, and I swear to God, I lose track of it like instantly. And I'm thinking like, how, you know, and of course, you know, I'm trying every once in a while. It's not a, it's not a practice that's consistent per se, but can you talk to, you know, the, you know, does it get better? I guess is my question. <laughs> you know, cause I, I, I would, you know, in, in those feeble attempts, I left that felt feeling very discouraged, you know, it's like, is this really, right. does this do anything? Is it worth it or whatever? You know, yeah. is it possible well, not to, not to be kind of scatterbrained <laughs> if you will? Yes, it is totally possible, but it's a practice like anything else. You're not, you know, for all the clinicians out there, you're not going to go into a home with a child with autism and teach them on one trial imitation and then wonder why they're not getting it right. You're building fluency. Um, so the research, and this is brain research, but they're showing strength and connections in the brain that show the longer you meditate, you know, these connections are strengthened, which is typical of, um, better control between the amygdala and the hippocampus and you're controlling your responses a little bit better, which we can see in overt behaviors. Um, so I can get to that in a second, but we are wired to always be taking in stimuli and we are wired to judge things. Um, this is coming back from, you know, caveman days of, um, I perceive a threat or there's no threat. Um, and what we're doing with our bodies at that time. So, you know, it, whether my boss is yelling at me or, um, or I'm seeing a tiger running at me, my body doesn't know or care. It's just, there's a threat and there's a stress response. Um, but you have to practice over and over. That's why I say, you know, it's a practice. Um, it is really difficult, really, really difficult. Um, you know, if you're putting it in perspective, think of how hard it is to lose 20 pounds. You have to change a lot of behaviors. You have to change your stress responses if you overeat. Um, you have to make time in your day to exercise. You have to choose the exercise that's right for you. There's a million things that increases the response effort of your life, and you really have to put a lot of time into it. But if I want to pick up my hand and put it down and pick up my hand and put it down, I have perfect control over my body. Your mind is completely different. Your brain is completely different. We don't have the same control over our brains that we do over our bodies. So people tend to, you know, and we put out a, a couple courses called um, Behavioral Xanax and Breathe Easy. And the feedback that I got was, well, I'm trying, but it's hard. And, and it's like, well, it's not supposed to be easy. Um, if it was easy right away, you know, everyone would do it. Um, so I, I kind of always put it in the model of trying to lose weight or trying to change any other behavior, but it's going to be a lot harder because you're not used to controlling your brain the way that you're controlling your body. Um, but it does get better, I promise. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the research says that the minimum amount of time that one can meditate and feel state effects, uh, which is just feeling differently for a little bit of time, uh, is eight minutes a day. So you can work up to that. You can just sit down for eight minutes a day. Um, but it's all about redirecting your focus. Um, especially in this world of technology, it's, well, my phone's going off and, oh, I'm getting an email and, oh, somebody's walking through the door and, well, someone needs me. And we're always so stimulated and it's getting worse um, and it's getting harder to focus our attention. Um, so that's why now more than ever, I think this is a great field for behavior analysts um, and everyone to, to get into, um, to really increase that focus and decrease our stress. How often and for how long do you meditate for? It depends. Um, my goal is to do it every day, no matter what. So I always aim for a minimum of eight minutes just because I know that's what the best research that we have says. Um, but sometimes if I'm waking up, I mean, I was, I woke up at five 30 this morning. I was at a client's house by six 15. So I don't have a lot of time. I typically do it in the morning. So on days like this, I mean, I go home, I'm tired, you kind of start to get sleepy when you're meditating. I might just say, okay, today was a really long day. I'm going to do as long as I can. I'm going to do two minutes. I lower the response effort as much as possible. And because I've been doing it for a couple of years, after about two or three minutes, I will fall into it and I can do it for a lot longer. 
Um, but what happens a lot of time is if you're not um, practicing every day and if you're kind of doing it every once in a while, it's like surfing, right? I, every single year I get in the water exactly one time and exactly one time I fail every single time. I don't get back in the water until next summer, right? So the chances of me becoming fluent and being good at surfing are very, very low. So if you do it intermittently every once in a while, you're a lot more likely to be deterred by the response effort. Whereas if you're doing it every day and you just accept that it's a practice and not attach yourself to those results, it is a lot easier. Well, it does sound like any other type of exercise routine or, or regimen. So, um, Okay. And and if someone was, I'll, I'm just going to ask another question or two about this and then we can get on to workplace well-being. Um, but I'm just again, kind of uh, interested in it just because of my the experiences I just described. Um, if someone were to start, uh, what would be a good tip for them, you know, to, you know, that would get them off on the best foot, you know? So if someone's listening to this podcast and they're saying, gosh, I'm so stressed, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, is, is there, is there one or two, you know, really important things you'd want folks to focus on if they were to, to get going? Absolutely. Um, and that's why we created our, um, behavioral Xanax course to get people started. It's, Really, I know from experience, it's very intimidating to walk into a yoga or meditation studio and immediately think, you know, you start that chain of, you know, internal thoughts, you know, internal behavior of this is scary. I can't do this. This is hard. Um, so we developed that course so that people can do this at home and, and take a little of the attachment and, and judgment out of it. Um, but I would recommend doing exactly what we do in the course is just starting with when in my day do I want to do this and setting time. Um, creating a space that you actually want to go to, um, whether it's buying a meditation pillow or getting a candle. I mean, just something to create a space for yourself that you're excited about. Um, it helps frame that behavior. Um, it's almost like if you want to start exercising, buy some weights in your favorite color or set aside, you know, get a, an exercise mat and create a little space in your house, something that you want to go to every day. Um, and the number one thing I would recommend is to sit down and be comfortable, um, to breathe and to any time you have those thoughts of this is hard, I can't do this, which you will almost every second or every two seconds you are going to have. I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> exactly. I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it wrong. This sucks. I'm terrible at this. I don't want to do this. And you get madder and madder and madder. And then you're like, you're, it's done, right? The it's, it's not rewarding. It's too, you know, it's too much. Um, just play with it. Nobody on the face of the planet has sat down and said, I'm going to be someone who meditates and just does it for 20 minutes a day perfectly. It's a practice. Um, even, you know, at an Olympic level, you know, Buddhist monk will tell you it's a practice. Um, and to not, not follow that chain of that private verbal behavior because, and just to kind of redirect your attention back to, I'm breathing and making those neutral statements. Um, it'll it'll keep you from going down that rabbit hole of feeling bad about yourself because you're not perfect at it. Um, I traditionally hate things that I'm not immediately perfect at. It's really hard for me to stick stick with it. Um, but I committed to a certain amount of time when I started, and I said, I don't care how much this is, you know, how terrible I am at this or how hard it is. I'm just going to try it. It's sitting and breathing, right? There's very little risk involved. Um, you know, what's, what do I have to lose? Um, so just really committing to it and, and not attaching to those results because they're not going to come immediately. And if someone say commits to this and let's say they do the, the eight minutes, you know, what is the, and let's say they, they do it for like 30 days or something, they do like a, another buzzword, right? They do a 30 day <laughs> challenge. Uh, yep, yep. Um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, mindfulness is one way to describe the outcome of a meditation practice, I guess, but let's operationalize that a little further. Like what, what is the, what is the outcome that I don't want to say one can expect, but that, that perhaps is likely to occur based on your understanding of the science. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's kind of what I was hearing. And correct me if I'm wrong. But what, you know, what 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 are the tangible benefits of of, of giving this a go? Let's say, and let's say someone again. Let's just make the assumption that someone um, commits to doing it for thirty days, and they do it eight minutes a day, and uh, they they 
accept those unhelpful private events and continue doing it for the full eight minutes or longer or what have you. Mm-hmm. So at the end of 30 days uh, or, or whatever that interval might be, what, what are some of the outcomes that are p- possible? Sure. Um, so a non-behavior analyst might say reduce stress and increase focus, but that's not good enough for us, right? Um, so I focus on specific stress behaviors. We all, the whole goal of, of at least the meditation that um, we have in our courses and that I do for my own practice is to reduce stress and increase the amount of time I can attend to something before I get distracted. So, uh, but however, we all have different stress behaviors. Uh, I did a poll a couple polls actually on a Facebook group of behavior analysts, um, and, um, in our course with our students on what are the behaviors you engage in when you're under stress? And it was everything from putting my keys in the fridge or forgetting where I put things or yelling at my kids to, um, eye twitching to unhealthy overeating to, I drink more wine or alcohol than I should. So everybody has a different stress response. Um, we have the same stress response in our body, the release of cortisol and other things, but what that looks like behaviorally is very different. So if you're under a lot of stress and I'm under a lot of stress, the same things are happening in our bodies you know, on a molecular, I guess, level, but our behaviors are going to be very different. I might grab a bottle of wine and you might go running. And one of those behaviors is healthier than the other. So <laughs> one of those is not true, by the way, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to recommend things here. You know, nothing wrong with a run or a bottle of wine. Um, but, uh, that's why, you know, instead you, of just giving, you, you might this- run to a bottle of wine. Right, exactly. If you want to, you know, run to the store. Yes, yeah, exactly. Miles away. That's that's where that's the context I I understood what you said as. Well, anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Livens out, right? Like calorie wise. Um, so, um, what you might expect to feel, at least for me, is I am less likely to get distracted. Um, it's a lot easier for me now, and I've been practicing for a long time. It's a lot easier for me to. Um, you know, see a text message come through and ignore it or have a phone call come through and ignore it or um, get some other, you know, have a thought come up in my head of, oh, gosh, I have to do this. And I'll write it down and go right back to what I was doing. Um, So pulling my attention back to what I'm doing. And then the state effects. Again, there are state effects and trait effects. State effects are temporary. Trait effects are more permanent. You're not going to get that eight minutes a day. That's for the people that have been meditating for hours and they go on retreats and they're doing this for years. Um, but people report feeling calmer, um, feeling more relaxed, um, being more, you know, in the moment they're attending to stimuli that's happening right now, as opposed to thinking about things that are happening in the future or in the past. Um, so they're attending to, to what's going on around them and, and noticing a little bit more of, of what's going on in their own environment, as opposed to, um, you know, being, I guess, not in the moment thinking of things ahead of them or behind them. Um, so those are some of the things that you can expect. And the meditation is interesting because it's dosage dependent. They, they say it's dosage dependent. So the longer the duration, um, that you do it, say from eight minutes to an hour a day and the longer amount of time, the, um, the more benefits you, um, will see. And this is actually shown in the research from altered traits as well as, um, the center for healthy minds, which I thought that was really interesting. If you want to earn a free type two CE while learning about what precision teaching can do for you and your clients, you're going to want to visit chartlytics.com forward slash Matt. Once there, you'll be able to see a short video that shows how an ABA agency radically improved outcomes for their learners using PT guided by Chartlytics cloud-based measurement systems. At chartlytics.com forward slash Matt, you'll also find a free, newly revised and expanded ebook called Change Behavior, Change Lives Precisely. Finally, the team at Chartlytics offers intensive workshops on PT at various locations in the United States and Canada. You can find out where these are held at, at you guessed it, chartlytics.com forward slash Matt. If you do decide to attend one of these and you want to save a few bucks in the process, you'll find a coupon code there as well. So if you want to realize human potential through individual behavior change analytics, head on over to chartlytics.com forward slash Matt. This all jives with some of the workplace well-being stuff that you're doing. And if you want to kind of describe the uh, uh, the uh, work well, uh, uh, 
uh, endeavor or brand or whatever you want to call it, um, sure. you know, to talk about that as well too, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I got to work well via um, the meditation. Once I got into the meditation, was reading the research, um, I it was a serendipitous event that Todd Ward had reached out to me um, from BSI. And we had a conversation and he said, Hey, how would you write? You know, how would you like to write for BSI? And um, I said, Sure. And we had talked about, you know, instilling, teaching critical thinking skills for supervision and um, some other ethical things. And uh, I think I called him a couple of days later and said, How about I write about meditation and yoga? And he must have had a heart attack, but he uh, he went with it and allowed me to write that. And the article ended up being really, really popular. Um, and it was terrifying for me to write as a behavior analyst. Um, but I was getting emails from around the world, from literally from around the world, from behavior analysts saying, you know, I'm really stressed out and I've, I want to meditate, but I feel like a bad behavior analyst. That was the pattern that I was seeing, which really concerned me and made me kind of sad. Um, so I thought I want to keep going with meditation and mindfulness. I created behavioral Xanax and breathe easy, our meditation courses. Um, and through my research for the course, I got into public health research and research on stress and mostly workplace, um, stress. And I took some surveys and did some polls and it was crazy to me that, out of the choices of, um, um, you know, behavioral difficulties that my child has and, um, dissatisfaction at my job or, um, you know, relationship problems with my spouse, workplace stress and anxiety was by far the top cause of stress of the hundred or so people that I polled. Um, again, there could be some bias there, but to me, again, you know, my networks are, a lot of um, people in the in the field of behavior analysis, mostly with autism. Um, a lot of people have kids, um, and I know what it's like to be around kids that are tantruming. And just the fact that their workplace was more stressful than that really resonated with me. So after um, I was done creating the courses at the end of last year, I realized that workplace stress is a public health concern. And the more I looked at it, I got to the point of realizing that chronic disease is shown to be caused by or exacerbated by stress. And one of the top places, if not the top catalyst, I suppose, for stress is the workplace. And I thought, we spend so much time at work. This is a huge stressor. I can work on a global approach to ameliorating public health concerns like stress and anxiety through the workplace. Um, so we do meditation, uh, meditation is one of our areas through work well. Um, but we also form, um, focus on leadership and performance management. So I'll get into that a little bit. Work well was formed. Um, and I realized that this was a large endeavor, um, that I was taking on and I had all these ideas and I wanted to move quickly on it. So I took on, um, I leveraged social media and I took on, three team members, um, to help me develop products, run social media and to do business outreach and development. Could not ask for a better group of people. Our team's amazing. Um, I've gotten the chance to, um, to lead again and create a company culture right from the beginning, uh, a culture of health. And we say like a health centric culture we have. Um, so we're all really passionate about going into workplaces and using behavioral analysis to, to nudge and to modify and to influ influence behaviors that are health-related behaviors as opposed to um, behaviors that operate against our values of health. So what are some work well interventions or what, what, are, what, what, is, a, what is a typical client if there is such a thing? And, uh, you know, so what are some, what are some ways in which you, you help companies? I mean, I get the teaching, the meditation piece, but... You know, you talked you um, talked about some leadership and organizational stuff too. So, can you kind of, I guess, conceptualize a case for us in terms of how you might work with an organization? Sure. So, we are um, at the tail end of developing our health and business assessment, and um, basically, uh, if you look at our logo, work well instead of the O and work, it has a three and that represents the intersection between behavior, business, and health. So, that's our model, and that's what we use. 
Um, we have looked at what we as behavior analysts consider good science and uh, under leadership and, um, you know, meditation, mindfulness, we loosely categorize that and performance management. And um, we've developed a health and business assessment where um, each item is tied to a piece of the research. So we might give a survey on, uh, we might give a health and business um, survey to an organization of 50 people. And the employees would take that survey. And the thing that I love about our health and business assessment is that all of most of the items are observable directly. So not only do we have a subjective measure via survey of how employees are feeling and does this procedure or policy exist or not at your company, um, but we can also go in and either look at permanent products or directly observe these processes and policies in place. So, um, you know, does your company engage in movement, you know, breaks throughout the day? Do you have the opportunity to do that? Sub question, is that rewarded and reinforced or is it punished? Um, so there are two separate scores that the client would get. Uh, we call it a, a corporate health hero score. Um, so they'll get a corporate health hero score on the policies and procedures that they have set up, but also are they are they doing right by that three-term contingency of rewarding people for that behavior? Or is it being punished? You know, if you go on vacation or for a working meeting, you come back and it's more stressful than before you left and you've got 200 emails. Um, what we see a lot, you know, what I get a lot is, oh, so you're, you're a corporate wellness program. And to me, that's another phrase that we stay away from because corporate wellness programs, there is some decent research out there to show that there is an effect um, and that it, it, some of them can work, but these people creating these programs aren't behavior analysts. So they have healthy snacks in the break room and at meetings, they might have a meditation room or like a nap room, like at Google, but is it, is the response effort high or low? And is there reinforcement or punishment at the end of the day, if you do take advantage, um, of these of these strategies that these companies have in place. So we would go in and basically we get individualized data. Um, we also take data on the demographics of the company. Is it mostly female or mostly male? What's the age range and, and all that? What are the strategic initiatives of the company? Um, where are you going? What are your values? To help align everything so that our, our recommendations moving forward are as individualized as possible. I see. So, Let's say um, I am an owner of a an ABA clinic, and I have um, thirty or so staff members, give or take. Right? What mm -hmm. are some What are some just you know? Um, it might be unfair to ask you to kind of talk about how to how to cultivate a culture of, of well-being in, in, in the space of this podcast, but what are, what are, what's some low-hanging fruit a, a business owner can, can uh, implement to, to um, address some of the, the typical concerns that you're seeing in companies? Um, if you have a company you know, of 30 people, I think it's completely possible to do a values assessment or a reinforcer assessment of your employees. Um, what we see a lot of is um, well, but if they do these things, then they get to put their name in a raffle and then they might get something eventually that might not mean that much to them. Um, so they don't, you know, they're missing that behavioral approach. So when we talk to people about, Hey, what if you took, you know, Matt and Susie and Sally and, you know, you know, all these people and gave them a values assessment, you would know their top values and what means the most to them. So maybe, you know, Gia's top value for for work is balance. Um, Matt's top value is money or recognition. And Sally just had a child or Ben just had a child. So time off, you know, with family would be really valuable to them. And individually, this is where performance management comes in, um, individually reinforcing people based on what they find meaningful. Um, and then bringing in leadership to understand the why behind that from a behavioral viewpoint of, hey, if, if you can shove you can shove money down someone's throat, but if they feel that they have enough and it's not valuable to them, you're not going to get the behavior that you want to see out of that employee. Um, and they're they're more likely to leave if there's another company with a better work life integration model or something along those lines. 
I see. So to get really specific in terms of what is important to the employees as, as it relates to, to reinforcers. Yeah. And I think it comes down to contingencies. You know, even if you're, you know, giving a survey to 200 people and giving a values assessment or reinforcer assessment to 200 people is laborious. Um, not to say it can't be done, but, you know, we as behavior analysts have a great eye for these things of walking into a company and saying, well, everyone agree that they want healthy food, but in order to get the healthy food, you have to go all the way up to the eighth floor. And then this door is sometimes locked to access this kitchen that has a healthy food when donuts are right in front of me, right? I'm going to grab the donut. (laughs) So, you know, and, and I think there's, there's, um, a a huge knowledge gap there that we as behavior analysts uh, can fill in for everyone and, and make things a little bit more, um, coherence, you know, so there's a pipeline for these things. I see. You know, uh, Celia writes a, uh, in a, with a good question. She's, you know, and this is, I'm, I'm curious what you're seeing out there in companies. And one of the things that she's talking about here is that, uh, you know, many corporations are starting to consider, you know, uh, policies of shutting down. So, you know, not, not emailing, calling, texting people at off hours and things like that. Um, so in regard to helping companies improve employee health outcomes, um, what are some other strategies that you're seeing, you know, perhaps as it relates to that balance piece? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's called Z mail actually, uh, Z, Z, Z mail, I guess, uh, for sleeping mail. Um, Adam Grant was talking about this on his podcast the other day. Um, he's been an awesome resource. So yes, they do shutting down and, um, you're not allowed to check your email after this time, you know, um, but the, the times that I'm hearing are still way outside the bounds of what I would consider a normal work day. It's like not past 10 o'clock and not before six in the morning. Um, so <laughs> to me, it's kind of like, well, great idea. You know, you, you've got the right idea. Um, and this, this concept kind of also comes from Adam Grant is, but I love my job. And what if I want to work past 10 o'clock at night? And what if I get up at four o'clock in the morning and go to the gym and I'm ready to rock at, at you know, at five 30 or six o'clock in the morning, but I'm not a, I'm not allowed to send emails. Right. So ideas 42, um, actually as a work life team. And what we're finding out is things like, um, flexibility in the workday that we assume, you know, we all want that flexibility, but things that we assume are going to be, um, beneficial to other people aren't as beneficial as we think they are. Um, for example, the flexible workday work whenever you want. When does your work day end? You know, what are the parameters there? When does it begin and when does it end? And if you're working in a place that, you know, your laptop, you know, you're not emailing or whatever, I guess, you know, that's fine. But I don't know anybody that doesn't email for work and you you always have your laptop and they, they give you all these tools so that you can work whenever and wherever you want. So then it becomes the responsibility of the individual to shut down. And those contingencies are really tricky because, you know, we tell ourselves, Oh, I'm just going to answer that one little email. And then you're sitting there for two or three hours. Um, so you're wanting to, to avoid and escape, um, those things that you have to do by checking them off your to-do list and you're sitting there and you've got control over the situation and, and you can sit there for hours. That's the problem. Well past dinner, well past your kids going to bed on vacation. Um, so the work life team, I've spoken with the work life team, um, at ideas 42 and they're doing some really amazing preliminary, um, research on flexibility and autonomy and, um, really taking a behavioral approach, um, and a, a critical approach to what, what we're actually doing to people by saying, sure, work whenever you want, but really meaning you can be working 24 hours a day if you really want to. And then, you know, companies are saying workplace wellness and and balance, it matters to us. And they put these policies in place, but then they promote the person who's always on and who's always available. And that creates distrust within the company. And then the Z-mail and whatever policies you have in place, they go out the door and they're useless because you're reinforcing a completely opposite incompatible behavior. Um, people who are doing it well, I would say Aetna is a forerunner. They Health is not a sideline thing for them. They have made it part of their culture. They have products. Um, I think it's called Aetna Health Promise. 
and Aetna Health something else. Um, They've like trademarked these programs. Um, They cover them. There's a core program, an enhanced program, and I think a premier program. And the core program comes with a slew of things. Um, You can go to their website and look it up if you'd like. Um, A slew of things that are covered by insurance. So the response effort is really low. It's covered in health insurance. So it's not something you have to you know, pay for out of pocket. And they've ingrained it so strongly in the culture that it's more just kind of expected that you do it. Um, And they've actually taken data on this. I think it was, um, it was $1,600 per employee that they saved um, in a year, which um, they attribute to people getting sick less and taking less days off because they're stressed out, you know, mental or physical, um, health issues. So that's really encouraging. General Mills and Target have gotten on board. They do meditation practices um, and have made it part of their culture. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's starting, um, but we're still on we're still on beginning ground as far as, as all those things are concerned. Yeah, those are those are uh, encouraging signs though. But yeah, I would also agree that there's there's certainly a lot of a lot of work to be done. And I think a lot of us, particularly in this field, you know, especially when you have, you know, not to put it too uh, dramatically, but, you know, lives hanging in the balance. You know, we support people in vulnerable situations and you want to be timely in your responding and you want to provide information to help clients and things like that. And I can I can see uh, and have certainly felt the angst of, uh, you know, being kind of torn between, you know, trying to set some time aside and then uh, at the same time being responsive to the needs of the people you work with and work for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely uh, uh, but it's good to hear that some of these, especially these larger corporations, uh, it'd be interesting to see, particularly with some of those Aetna programs, how those things shake out over time. So, um Man, lots of lots of food for thought here. So this is just really, really fascinating. Um, I know you uh, brought your uh, you you mentioned your courses a, a couple of times. Um, do you want to kind of describe uh, uh, those in a little bit more detail and let people know kind of a little bit about what what those are about, what they can expect, and things like that? Sure. Um, I think those courses served um, a couple purposes for me. Um, when I, I had started a, a behavioral um, pediatrics practice and I was talking to doctors, um, you know, networking with doctors for referrals, and despite the fact that they recommended ABA, they couldn't really describe it to me. Um, so when I created the meditation courses, it was also partially to help disseminate what behavioral science is. Um, and a lot of the behavior analysts um, that I've networked with are really, you know, um, involved and really excited about it. Um, so, and then the, the second purpose was obviously to, to provide some social impact. So, um, we are redesigning and re-releasing our behavioral Xanax course. Um, it's a month long. The first week is just education and videos and prepping weeks two and three. Um, or sorry, I'll backtrack a little bit. The first week is a values assessment. Um, it's a time allocation assessment. So you're taking a couple days and looking at where you're engaging in non-functional behaviors, you know, Oh, from about five to seven, I stare at the TV or I'm flipping through social media or Uh something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did it myself. And I, I, I hypothesized what my non-functional hours were going to be in a week, and it was like three times as much, and I was appalled. So, um, yeah, I, I, th- I think I would be horrified <laughs> if I if I took those data and and yeah, actually yeah. looked at them. But it's a good it's a good good thing to to think about. Yeah, it was bad, um, but you know it, you have that reactivity, right? So immediately you're aware of it, and I was I was on top of it, and you know whenever I found myself scrolling, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go meditate or go for a run or do a health related behavior instead of this non functional nonsense. Um, so a time allocation assessment, a values assessment that I have um, people tie to their reinforcement, and also making like a why statement. Um, why do you want to engage in meditation? I want to yell at my kids less. I want to reduce my stress. I want to, you know, whatever and, and tying it to that value. Um, I think that's the best way to solidify that people will hang in there throughout the month because like I said, it it is hard and, um, a couple weeks of meditating might show some, some state effects, but you're going to have to do it a lot longer. So I really wanted to make it fun and engaging and, and tie it to something that people individually cared about. 
Um, and then the week three, uh, you're recording stress behaviors this entire time, by the way. So you're thinking about overeating and what you do when you're, you know, when you're stressed out weeks two and three, that's a combined video. We go into um, a little bit about behavior and the neuroscience behind meditation. I get a little bit more into, um, specific things that I've learned through the research. Um, so a lot of education, um, and content there. We do some videos. Um, I have videos from Russell Harris, um, which I really like a couple of videos on, um, what mindfulness and meditation actually is, um, just to keep it interesting and fun. And then, um, you start your meditation practice week two. So weeks two and three, you're practicing. Um, I give some examples of, you know, what a space might look like and, some of the things that our team uses. Um, and then in week four, we're really just working on maintaining the practice and troubleshooting. Um, so I provide some different things, some ways that you might want to change up your meditation practice, different stimuli, you know, you can involve. Um, and then we finish off, you know, looking at stress behaviors of the individual and seeing where they go. And I'll put the link in the show notes but if people are interested in this, where can they find this information on, on the course? Um, they can actually visit our website um, anytime after, I would say, June 1st. Um, and I am actually, if you're listening, um, will um, am giving 30% off to anybody who's listening right now. So I think the code is OBSERVE, um, capital O for OBSERVE. And if you just type that in, um, I use Thinkific as a um, course platform. So it will be up on our website and available um, for enrollment after June 1st. All right. Cool. Cool. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for, for, for that. Um, 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 all right. Very, uh, very cool. Uh, so in terms of um, and, and the website itself is remind us it's it's W3RKWELL.com. Dot yes, com. Yep. All right. Cool. And again, we'll have all this information in the show notes. So in case you're driving your car, you're on the treadmill at the gym or whatever, don't worry. We will have it all at behavioralobservations.com. And we'll just, at this particular session, this will probably be session 50, 53. Sorry, I had to think there for a second. I had to count ahead how many episodes <laughs> I had in the can. So, um, But it'll be obvious to the, when you're listening to this uh, in, uh, in the future. So, all right, great. So, um, this has been really, uh, an educational experience for me and, uh, certainly had some kind of misdispelled. And, <laughs> uh, so I appreciate you walking us through all this and kind of weaving it into, you know, again, the larger and more important topic of workplace well-being. So, uh, Gia, this has been great fun. Um, before we go, I'd like to ask you if you have any advice for a newly minted BCBA. We're recording this, uh, in May and of as you probably know, there's lots of people either taking the test or gearing up to take it. And uh, so there's going to be a lot of newly minted BCBAs in a couple of weeks. Um, what advice might you have for them? Um, this is, to me, um, an amazing time to be a behavior analyst. And I've been really, really fortunate to um, have... Um, individuals, other behavior analysts that I really respect, reach out to me um, and offer to mentor me and, and to support me in what I'm doing. And that has really encouraged me to turn around and support other behavior analysts. Um, I think the best thing about starting work well is has been giving a place for other behavior analysts to go to do something different and to try something different, um, to disseminate our science and um, you know, find a mentor, I think would be, um, would be my number one, um, piece of advice. You know, there are so many areas for us to practice, um, so many ways to be innovative and to provide that, that meaningful social impact and to affect the world. Um, and I, I don't want to deter people away from the clinical side. We need good clinicians and good supervision and good leaders. And that's a whole other podcast. I could talk about that forever. Um, but I've had really, really good examples of leaders and mentors, um, you know, for me. Uh, and it's meant, you know, all the difference. Um, it's how I got to where I am now. And um, so, yeah, for, for those newly minted um, BCBAs or, or those thinking about it, um, there's a big world out there and, um, it's up to 
up to you and to all of us to to create it and to um, keep giving it a good name and and to be ethical, but also really impactful. Um, our work is definitely not done yet. Uh, Adam Ventura and I are actually writing a book to disseminate behavioral science across many different areas of life. Um, we've deemed it a, a book for smart and curious people. So look for that coming out uh, uh, sometime, I don't want to say maybe December, maybe sometime early next year. That's been an amazing adventure. Um, meeting people like you, um, Matt, has been um, such a great experience. And you know, get out there and network and, and disseminate and, um, and get involved with something that sets you on fire. All right, cool. That's, uh, those are great words to leave us with, uh, Gia. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, we'll have to have you back at some point to talk about, uh, you know, some of these other topics that, uh, we just got to scratch the surface on. So thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.